4: Greetings, listeners, in the podcast-verse. This is It Could Happen Here, the podcast about things falling apart, and sometimes how we can put stuff back together. I'm Garrison Davis, our resident uh, gender mess. Uh, In the past few weeks, we've been talking a lot here on the show about the escalating war on trans people and queer folks in general. There's been a wave of bills making any gender-affirming healthcare a felony for people under the age of 18, uh, which forcibly detransitions teenagers in multiple states. And we've had a lot of banning trans people from participating in sports and trying to ban books and discussion in schools about the, just the existence of queer people at all. But today, we're not really going to be talking about that. We've talked about that Plenty for the past few weeks. It's good to have a little little bit of a break. But we'll still be talking about stuff around trans people, because with all the discussion around gender-affirming healthcare, I thought it would be a good idea to put something together talking about what HRT, or hormone replacement therapy, actually is, as it, since it's the most common form of trans healthcare. And since many states are trying to, or already have criminalized it, perhaps I can use the pod to point people towards alternative means of receiving care, you know, in the vein of the putting stuff back together uh, side of the show. Now, I want to clarify up front that we're not giving anyone medical advice, obviously. I'm just making observations and talking about things as they exist um, and talking about things that many trans people have been doing for a long time, and that includes DIY HRT. My doctorate program is in parapsychology, not medical science, so just keep that in mind. First, I will quickly clarify what HRT, or Hormone Replacement Therapy, uh, actually is uh, for specifically non-cisgender individuals, because HRT as a term is also used for cis women to describe similar but different treatment. So HRT, as a form of gender-affirming treatment, uh, is when someone receives sex hormone medication that produces a number of desired secondary sex characteristics – there are two broad types of hormone therapy that one would receive depending on what direction you want to go in, gender-wise. There's feminizing hormones and masculinizing hormones. Feminizing hormones produce more typically feminine traits, right? Big, big shocker there. Uh, it, it, it usually uh, consists of a form of estrogen, usually called estradiol. There's different types of estradiol and also it can include anti-androgens, aka testosterone blockers. Masculinization therapy consists of taking testosterone, or androgens, and then also less commonly anti-estrogens, but usually just taking testosterone will suffice. Now, I'm no expert in hormones, uh, despite my weekly e-shot. but lucky enough, I was able to sit down with an actual expert on hormones and talk over Zoom. So what follows... Is segments from our conversation. I guess first, uh, do you want to uh, introduce yourself?
5: Sure. I am the Reverend Dr. Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Uh, I am an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy. Uh, My primary clinical focus is on gender affirming hormone therapy, uh, other kind of advocacy work in queer healthcare. And I do a lot of other stuff on the side pedagogy, ludic instructional design, game design, just anything that strikes my fancy, really.
4: Fun, fun stuff. In with Within kind of our, our coverage of trans stuff the past few weeks and months, it's been mostly on, like, the bills and, like, the politics side of things. I've definitely had some people, like, reach out and be like, okay, but how, like, why Why transgender? Why, why hormones? Like, why are hormones actually important? Like, could you actually explain, like, what, like, you know, with all of these, all these states banning hormones, let's, I, will, I would like to kind of, Explain why it's such a big deal and like how much these things actually are like life-saving medication for so many people.
5: Yeah. So why hormones? <laughs> <laughs> I I love it because it's a question that as like a species, we've been we we have known the answer to for like five thousand years. It's it's very funny. But um hormones are okay. A big part of this requires to like acknowledge something that is very wrong in in like the medical literature there's a lot of elements of healthcare that are coordinated between like male and female and there's a kind yes, of like yeah uh, obviously is a little so there's a oh, lot i, I of mean bias. I, I mean like from like
4: from people's i know when trans people talk about interacting with the medical system it's always like oh yes we're going to be doing this bullshit yes of course that yeah is, well
5: <laughs> but but it even goes to a, like a really deep level like if you're in the hospital and you get a CBC count there's a male profile and a female profile of what your hematocrit should be on like what the level of red blood cells are and and the general understanding in like the health industry is that there's a biological anatomical difference between them and for the longest time certainly in this country trans women would have would be compared against the male yes. profiles yeah. but but it's nonsense. It's actually should be thought of in form of hormone dominance because the vast majority of medical differences are not anatomical; they are hormonal. Yeah. and and that right there should should give the game away a little bit. Which is bit. really funny. Which is why I why I kind of hate
4: the term biological woman whenever people start using that because that's not really how biology
5: works. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, like, it, the, the joke is my my nesting partner, my fiance, wishes that she could be a robot. And then, if she were to do that and upload her brain into an immortal robot body, she would no longer be a biological woman, but she would still be a woman. It's just cybernetic., yeah. um, I hate that. It's like organic. Organic just means it has carbon in it. Like, give me a break.
4: Yes. so, so yeah, <laughs> hormones what's yes. what's what's the deal? Do they, because I know all of like, people will be like, well, all of these trans people sure do seem sad. I wonder, that's, how, how, much, how can we make things better? Does this thing actually
5: work? Oh, well, so it's somewhat multifactorial. I, I have a friend who does um, cell imaging and her like working theory, which I'm, I'm a little dubious of, is that like the brains of trans people like have receptors for hormones that the body doesn't make. And we should think of being transgender as having like a form of hypogonadism. Yeah, but,
4: there's there's a lot of different trains of thought there in terms but, of the different theories of why trans people exist and how it's like... You know, girls' brain, boys' body, blah 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 blah.
5: Which all, if you dig deep enough, goes back to eugenics. So it's all fucking yeah, nonsense. Yeah, I've never,
4: I've always not liked that model. I've always, yeah. it's always, I've always found it to be a little bit uncomfortable because Same. I, I take hormones because I want to, and I don't think it's because my 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 brain is like secretly looking for girl receptors or something. Right.
5: Right. I I totally agree. Like, it also requires a certain, like, extremely binary understanding of gender, which I also do not ascribe to. So it's a very, like, odd thought. But putting aside all of that, if you just wanted to look at the, like, why people want hormones, because... When a person who wants hormones gets the hormones they want, their suicidality goes down, their uh, anxiety, depression goes down, gender dysphoria—if we wanted to, you know, talk about the problems with that—essentially go, like goes away, uh, and they get they start to get treated like the way they want to be treated in society. So from the—if if you want to look at it not from like the causes but from the results—giving gender affirming hormone therapy to a person who is requesting gender-reforming hormone therapy has a 99% success rate. The, the the rate of regret from starting hormones is 1% or less, which is unbelievable in the healthcare field. Like, like having a child, like biologically giving birth, has a 7% regret rate. Like, it, the idea of any therapy having that high of a rate of preventing death... Uh, anxiety, depression, uh, bullying, like all of the different effects. Being that successful should be like a miracle. It should be looked at as the thing we in healthcare are like should do absolutely ethically. Uh, and it, it is it is so much more complicated than that. So like hormones from the results, Obviously, makes sense. It aligns your body's shape and like fat fat deposits, and the way that you feel, the way that you relate to your emotions. It all goes back to the way that hormones work on your body. And it, it, there's there's like the old saying that like a cis person would never want to try gender reforming hormone therapy. So like, if you have the in, like, if you want to try it, you should be allowed to try it. I mean, like you're you're kind of a good example, right? Care like yeah. I bet if you were sitting, yeah, if you were sitting around a bar with a bunch of like cis guys and you were like, hey, who wants some estrogen? They would all like shrink away (laughs) from it. Like,
4: (laughs) no, absolutely. Cause yeah, it's definitely a thing. Like, I'm not the most dysphoric person, but I'm like, sure, I'll take estrogen. That sounds fun. That's like, it's like that. That sounds like a thing that I could enjoy watching my body change. And I'm, you know, it's, it's, I'm happy that we're moving more towards that and not having to deal with the, Oh, I am so dysphoric, I want to die, which is mm-hmm. obviously very, a big thing for a lot of people. I'm not I'm not minimizing that. Right. Um, but also a lot of trans people who've had more kind of complicated feelings on gender, whether they're like genderqueer, and non-binary, have in the past had made it more difficult to get gender affirming care because they don't fit into those specific like male female uh, boxes as easily.
5: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and what you're talking about is really something that's relatively recent, the idea of gender euphoria, like the idea that people want to take hormones because it gives them joy to like dress or act or feel a certain way. And that, I mean, healthcare is all about at least up until, well, whew. the reality <laughs> of healthcare is that it is all about finding problems to solve and not really looking at like-
4: Making your life just better in general?
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I know plenty of people who started hormones of any type just because they felt it would make them happier and they were correct. And that gender euphoria is just as good of a reason to take it as the dysphoria. The problem ends up in how the medical industry treats it, because dysphoria, quote unquote, is something. as a long. Oh my gosh, I could go into the whole history of that if you wanted. But I'm
4: sure we could talk about the DSM four and DSM five for a long time. Oh, it's so frustrating.
5: I spend I spend a two hour session in my queer healthcare class specifically just dunking on the DSM five d- definition of gender dysphoria, um, but. The, 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 the real problem is like this focus on this negative quality and how that actually damages a lot of the conversations around, uh, gender affirming hormone therapy and trans people in general, uh, like instead of seeing it as like this manifestation of people, like truly taking control of their lives to become authentic in like the truest way, like you have never met a more truly well, uh, uh self-made man than a trans man who gets hormones. Like it, it's, I mean it's and it's still something where even
4: we're 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 not quite at the at the gender utopia I mean obviously because of all of the anti trans stuff but even obviously. like even on like just purely purely the medical side like I even for for informed consent um I still needed to get diagnosed with gender dysphoria at the informed consent clinic in order in, or, in order to get hormones mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which is in part like an insurance thing and you know it, it has has all of these all of these bullshit reasons um, but that is that is something we're still we're still definitely dealing with.
5: Oh my goodness, yeah. And the the better informed care clinics are the ones that they realize it's just like an effort in box ticking. So they're just yeah. like, "Yep, sounds good. You came here to this clinic and you asked about hormones. Sounds like gender dysphoria to me. Like yes, we'll tell yes. your insurance whatever we got to say."
4: Yes.
3: Like goods. That's dot com forward slash IHeart. Exclusions apply. See Lisa.com for more details.
4: Eventually we'll go into like hormone blockers as well. Um, but yes. I want to talk about there's a lot of this this there's a lot of rhetoric that's been growing for a long, long time about the the extremely damaging, irreversible effects of of hormone replacement therapy oh um, and how they're going to permanently alter your biology if you give these to children and there's five-year-olds taking testosterone and it's gonna like <laughs> you're like you're like oh really that sounds very scary um so that's something I would like to discuss It's like because a lot of people when we, when we, we, we talk, talk about hormones they think of this as this like big extremely life-altering thing um that has like these you know irreversible effects on your you know, your bones are going to get weak and shriveled and never and never get big again and all of <laughs> all of this very scary stuff um
5: what's up with that <laughs> <laughs> i think a lot of it goes back to that biological essentialism because hormones even for the people who give them are considered partially like reversible, because yes. the majority of the things that happen, one take a long ass time. Like you will know whether or not this is a good idea for the majority of people well before the physical manifestations occur, uh, and and considering like one of the biggest problems we have with certain formulations, like in uh, the once a week or once every other week injectable version of estrogen, by the time you get to right before your next dose, your estrogen is so low, you're feeling it and it's starting to like reverse some of those. So like if you're feeling it after two weeks, how irreversible could it be? Uh, and, And some of it depends on like eight uh, timing, because if we're talking about a person who has, say, already gone through a testosterone-mediated puberty, then some of the things are just not going to be affected. You can't change, like, bone size, height, or anything like that. There, There's some interesting things about, like, hip uh like flexation and and, yeah. and, and pivoting I have and, seen um, more of
4: that recently yeah actually yeah
5: yeah and 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 even like shoe size can can change because of the way the ligaments work uh, on hormones but like the bones aren't going to change once they're done growing but that's sort of where the puberty blockers come in that we can, we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, But for the, for the majority of people, if you are going through, if if you have gone through a puberty that you did not want, you can take hormones to go through a puberty you do want and get the effects that you do want. And some of the elements, sure, like, you know, growing breasts uh, or gynecomastia, as we would call it in the cis man, which is another whole nonsense, um, is, is... not irreversible like you can have them removed if you decided that you needed to like detransition which is a whole nother story but even then it takes like five years to see their final breast size like yeah if you if you're on hormones for five years and I, you're I worried think, about the irreversible quote-unquote effects like what are we doing here i mean
4: and even i've heard from a lot of my elder trans friends that whenever they go off hormones sometimes their breasts just kind of go away because they're not massive to begin with <laughs> like mm-hmm. if it's gen- generally 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 you, you don't get uh the massive massive honkers uh immediately <laughs> um so we're working for, on it i know i, I know we're trying um <laughs> but a lot of a lot a lot of even the i you know that was one of the big things that informed consent thing was like the you know a lot of these changes are reversible except for breasts these these are these are these are, these are a permanent change be careful and all my and all my trans friends are like eh, 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 meh, a, l- a little bit but i mean like your nipples won't shrink like your nipples will definitely be bigger and that that won't change but a lot of like the size actually does fluctuate and um, I I I can even tell that on like depending on if I like miss a dose or something, being like, oh yeah, like there is a lot of a lot of fluctuation, even like on like you know like temperature and stuff, how cold oh it is will determine yeah. how 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 my chest looks. It is it it is uh it's pretty fun. I mean I am <laughs> I, I I I just like the biohacking thing in general. It is like the cyberpunk in me. Um, but yeah, I guess I I guess we could talk about um hor- hormone block hormone blockers as well because this is the other kind of thing you hear a lot about when conservatives are very scared about trans people the idea of hormone blockers like making people infertile or making permanent changes to children's health or something blah 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 oh blah, my blah. gosh
5: that's the thing that is like really really frustrating for me specifically because Puberty blockers the gonadotropin the GnRH antagonists and agonists which have been around for like
4: long time for
5: like ever for for i i, I want to say it was like 100 years but I, I i might be misquoting something that i'm half remembering but they've been around for like a really long time to the point where we have generics and in the in the pharmaceutical industry that means that it's been like decades at the very least something that had rigorous testing that has an indication with the FDA for Precocious puberty, which just means a person who is usually cis who, for whatever reason, has puberty at a very young age. With some of the some of the specific cases that I've seen that that I've I've looked into, um, involve giving puberty blockers to like a three or four year old because their body is trying to undergo puberty. So even the idea of like, oh well, I don't know, this twelve year old being on a puberty blocker for three years—that sounds very dangerous. When we have a person over here who is on it. For 15 years, with no ill effects, like like no long lasting ill effects. Um, the the yeah. idea of anybody describing it as like experimental is absolutely ahistoric, outside of the realm of reality.
4: Yeah, they're just it's it's basic anti anti intellectualism, because yeah, we've been giving cis children hormone blockers for a long time for early onset puberty, and turns out they they work and they're pretty safe. So. Yeah. Maybe we should like, give those to trans kids too if they want them. Uh seems like something we could at least try and see if it improves m- mental health. And then
5: it's it's not even a matter that we have to try. It. We've been doing it for like almost ten years. Like the the it was first I think it was like 2013, there's a there's a TED talk I use in my class of a of a physician who like pioneered the use of puberty blockers in trans kids and showed that any trans kid who got puberty blockers and then was allowed to undergo the puberty that they desired at an appropriate age, which is actually like 14, 15 at the same time as their peers. Um, but even if they had to wait till 18, the psychological effects of having in in appropriate puberty are essentially nullified. They are otherwise psychologically and physically like identical to their, their cisgender peers. So it, it's like we have actual evidence that it is extremely beneficial and extremely worthwhile. And like the one kind of long-term side effect is you might be up to an inch shorter than you otherwise be, which is a wildly like problematic like study that was done because like, we don't have time machines to know whether or not that worked. Like what would your control group be? Um, And it's just wild. (laughs) It's very bothersome to me because a lot of the gender affirming hormone therapy the evidence is all over the place for a variety of political reasons and and historical reasons but for hormone blockers or for puberty blockers specifically the evidence is like really solid really strong and it ah uh, this so is this is
4: a question i actually have because i'm actually unfamiliar with this specific thing but yeah if if you give like um hormone blockers to like a kid who's 10 they they still kind of like grow at mm-hmm. the same rate as a lot of as a lot of their uh, peers. Yep. And that is a it, it just it's it's this specifically like the secondary sex characteristic changes that yeah. get put on pause. Um but there's just so much th- yeah, there's just so much fear around the whole even even just the hormone blocker thing, right? When we're getting, you know, just like prescribing hormone blockers being like a felony offense in multiple states now. You're like that's like it's it is just an an extreme degree of anti anti anti-intellectualism just like just like purposeful like ignorance um and just extreme hatred and uh Mm -hmm. bigotry and it's it is uh i mean yeah it's a i'm kind of speaking to the choir here but
5: (laughs) well yeah of course (laughs) but 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 that's the trick And, and even like the puberty blocker thing like you were saying your body will still make human growth hormone. You will still grow. It's just that the modulation of that with say testosterone, which would increase the overall growth, uh, like just isn't there. And people say, make a lot of, um, you know, talk a lot about the idea of um, bone mineral density because you don't have testosterone or estrogen, which are both necessary, one or the other necessary for your like bone mineral density to not like have like, easily fractured bones but like you don't even have that until you go through puberty if you're just like preventing one puberty the endogenous puberty and then providing the hormones for an exogenous puberty they're fine like they, they have the hormones they need their bones are happy uh so yeah <laughs>
4: yeah I'd like to talk about, I guess kind of access to hormones and in like the, like the different models of of I mean obviously we're not giving up medical advice, uh but like yes. access to hormones and the different ways that people can go about that now through doctors, through informed consent um and all of all and all of that jazz,
5: yeah, so the informed consent model is a much more recent uh option and it's not available everywhere i have a friend in texas we had to find a clinic that was like two hours away to get her hormones but here where i live we actually have two informed consent clinics so it's pretty convenient but it varies wildly by by region uh and the informed care clinics are great it means you come in they say this is what's going to happen do you still want to do it you say yes they take some blood they run some tests you come back in two weeks and they go here you go like that that's they, they, they work really well, uh, depending on the clinic, I guess. And uh, But the more traditional, quote unquote, standard model would be going to your PCP or or whoever and saying that you want to do this, which makes most of them very concerned. Because most physicians, pharmacists, nurses, they don't get taught anything about trans people or c- caring for trans people or gender-affirming hormone therapy in their school. Like So they have nothing to fall back on. Uh, so that makes them very nervous to do it. And then, uh, if you if you look at wow, gosh, I, I really want to tell you about the the guidelines stuff at some point here because it is buck wild. Sure. Sure. Um, but as to why that would be a concern. But another part of it is is also the insurance. You know, America's original sin in in our healthcare dystopia, if you will. Uh, the insurances historically have required, and and part of this is also from antiquated guidelines that has been somewhat like just grandfathered in to excuse the term, uh, this idea of like, well, you have to go to a therapist, you have to go to a psychologist and they have to say that you have gender dysphoria. That's why it's in the DSM. And then after you do that, some places require you to socially transition before getting hormones or anything, which can be extremely problematic for some individuals that just increases like visibility and bullying and and such in a way that it may drive people. it, it, It sort of was intentionally required back in the day to drive people to not want hormones anymore. And it's all of these gatekeeping steps. And it's even worse if you wanted to get a surgery later on uh, where you have to have been on hormones for a certain length of time. You have to have two different... Generally, like cisgender, right? Uh, Healthcare practitioners who don't necessarily understand like the full like everything that's going on write you letters before the and most insurances up until recently wouldn't even cover it. So it's just gatekeeping step after gatekeeping step because even the big guidelines, which is WPATH, which is about to put out their so gate guidelines. um, There's a guidelines out of San Francisco and the Endocrine Society has guidelines from 2017 that are, mm, but all of those are made by cisgender people, usually with the intent to gatekeep this care because it either they're uncomfortable with it because they're unfamiliar with it, they have some kind of ideological reason to be against it, uh, or whatever whatever else. There's a survey that I often quote to my students in class that um, they surveyed a whole bunch of, of trans individuals trying to get care from their physicians. And it was nearly a quarter of them said that they avoided healthcare because of discrimination, and half of them reported having to teach their healthcare practitioner how to care for them, which is wild like imagine going to the hospital with like heart failure and having to like talk your physician through how to care for you
4: can you can you live for two years with heart failure first before we give you treatment
5: (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh could you imagine if we treated other things this way i'd be like well are you sure that you have diabetes are you sure that you're like well we can't treat your diabetes you're too fat Well, your BMI is too high, so we can't give you the insulin. Like, give me a break. (laughs) What is happening?
4: Seems like uh, basically what you're saying is that we got a good system. We got it. We got to figure it out. Absolutely. No notes. Uh,
5: 100% perfect in every All right, way. Well, that does it for us today. It <laughs> can happen here. Uh, <laughs> well, specifically, if I could, um, it's really interesting from like the healthcare perspective because, or from, you know, the practitioner's perspective, because there's essentially two kinds of like treatment. There's guideline-based medicine and evidence-based medicine. And a lot of schools, like my school, teaches a lot of guideline-based medicine, which is for something like hypertension or diabetes is put out by like large organizations with a ton of. Evidence. It is actually like pretty reasonable. But that means that if you're going along with what they say, that means that you believe that they read those studies correctly and that their interpretation is in no way compromised by like sources of their income, say, and that. Those guidelines actually match your patient, so it's a lot of assumptions that you're making, which can be extremely problematic. And evidence-based is where you dive into the literature and you figure it out yourself, which is very time-consuming and and requires an awful lot of like professional uh, like you know criticism in a way. Uh, but when you look at it for for trans care for for gender-affirming hormone therapy, those guidelines are unbelievably compromised. To give you an example, uh, a hotly contested issue in uh, feminizing therapy is the use of micronized progesterone in feminizing care. Uh, It's kind of like all over the place. There's a long history of it, uh, of, of this controversy. In the upcoming WPATH SOC-8 guidelines that I uh, had like a preliminary copy to, to provide notes on, there, the, there's a single statement that just says that the, this, there's a controversy that exists and you should not use micronized progesterone in transfeminine care. And they list a study Okay. If you pull up that study, the title of it is Progesterone is Important for Transgender Women's Therapy Applying Evidence for the Benefits of Progesterone in Cis Women. And it is like a pretty long document that concludes that it is like an ethical imperative to offer it. So the idea that the people who are writing the WPATH guidelines read this article, read this, this like meta analysis, and went, yeah i don't really agree with any of that i'm just gonna say no is just so infuriating again that seems like we got a good system going here yeah 100 percent. no notes
4: i guess on that note let's i, I, I want to discuss some of the some of the things that aren't talked about as much as like um anti uh progesterone spiro and mm-hmm. what all kind of those do and how they can kind of supplement a regular estradiol Prescription, Thera- I guess. Re- Regimen? yeah. Regiment. Re- Regiment, yes. Ah. That, that, that sounds that sounds fancy.
5: Sure, sure. So uh Generally speaking, if you're, maybe give a baseline for for folks who are unaware, the the way that we do feminizing therapy is we offer estradiol, which is a bioequivalent version of E2, because there's like three different versions of of estrogen, um, and an anti-androgen because testosterone tends to be somewhat of an overriding hormone. The presence of testosterone will override the effects of estrogen to a certain extent depending on doses and stuff like that, which is for the transmasculine individuals, why we just give testosterone. It just does the job. You don't need to block the estrogen. Uh, So, Huh, there's a you know there's a lot of history in just those hormones as well that we could talk about like conjugated estrogens versus estradiol and and all the different other stuff. But for the antiandrogens that we give, historically in this country we give spironolactone, which is a mineral corticoid. It's a potassium sparing diuretic, and it's just really good at higher levels. We usually use it in like cardio issues. Like it, it can be used for like hypertension, and some other things. Um, but and, we use- and-
4: I believe it makes you pee a lot. That yes, is, that is, so that is what I've heard. So
5: it's a diuretic, meaning that it makes you urinate an awful lot, and it's a potassium sparing because it prevents your body from eliminating potassium. So uh, no more it,
4: eating bananas.
5: Well, so that is that's the thing that I think is really really wild because you're using these high levels of it. It is preventing your uh, production of your endogenous production of testosterone and making you pee all of the time, which. Spoilers: Estradiol also makes you pee more often, so like that's a real fun combination. But then uh, physicians, if they don't know what the heck they're doing, they might say something like, "Well, you can't eat any bananas." And like historically, the people who are on feminizing therapy are healthy enough that their body just accommodates for it. And if you have hyperkalemia, which is like too much potassium, you're gonna know. Like your muscles are gonna ache, and there's gonna be a lot of like telltale side effects. Usually, it's only a problem if you are like only consuming a like salt alternative that has potassium instead of sodium, which is Okay. Like, okay. A,
4: like not you know, not super common.
5: Not super common. Uh, or if you have some other reason why your body is like holding on to potassium. Um, so it's not usually an issue, uh, it and spironolactone isn't sufficient for everyone. There's plenty of people who have like refractory testosterone after some time, and there are some other options. Uh, there's kind of a weird controversy about it uh, that is sort of heralded by the San Francisco guidelines I mentioned earlier, that spironolactone uh, leads to... Okay, wait, I want to make sure I get the wording right. It's leads to premature fusing of the breast bud. Uh, and overall smaller breast size, which the document that they cite for that is a real weird retrospective study from like a bunch of years ago on the rate of trans women getting breast augmentation. And it found that the vast majority of trans women who were on spironolactone got breast augmentation. Also get breast
4: augmentation, okay.
5: But the problem is like of their sample group of like two, 300 people, Almost all of them were on spironolactone. Like there's like a sampling error. Like it's nonsense. It's very silly. Um, And also, even like that premature fusing of the breast bud, I have never been able to find anything that suggests that that's a thing, or even like a way to explain what that statement even means. But the San Francisco guidelines, to go back to my guideline thing, actually says, has some like, maybe don't use spironolactone, even though it's something we've been using since literally like the 50s or 60s for this purpose. In other countries, you'll use what's called cyproterone, which is a synthetic progesterone, but it's not actually approved in the States because it has a, like, there is actually some evidence that it causes increase in certain specific cancers, but it's like a pretty limited overall risk. Like it's not like, Something like you know, going outside increases your risk of cancer. It's, yeah. it's not like a huge deal, but it was enough that they they don't. It's not approved in the states, but in a lot of other countries, you'll you might get cyproterone, which there's a lot of you know controversy around that too for those reasons. Um, Here, the other option that we usually see is uh, finasteride, which is a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor that essentially is preventing testosterone from being turned into dihydrotestosterone, uh, which we use normally for um, to prevent quote unquote male pattern baldness and in higher doses for prostate cancer because it's real good at because it like reverses some of the feedback loops just reducing produ- testosterone production yeah 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 um so it, it it's just fine like it that one has like very limited side effects but it might not have as substantial of a um reduction of testosterone that spironolactone does Uh, And then the, the kind of third one that we really, we don't see very often, but there's a lot of interesting evidence about is called bicalutamide. It's also a uh, prostate cancer medication. It actually blocks all of the receptors of testosterone in your body while not reducing the production of it. So you'll see a person who has like you know, they have like 700, their, their, their testosterone comes back as like 700, 600, whatever. Yeah. But they're entirely feminized because none of it has anywhere to work. Um, but the problem with that is bicalutamide being an anti-cancer med uh, primarily is ridiculously expensive. I think it's like 50 bucks a dose or something like what that. What a good or... system we have here. It's so great. Uh... <laughs> I will say, and and for my
4: gender queers out there or any, anyone else. You can also just take estrogen without any without any yeah. blockers, um, and you still get results, as yep. I can uh, as I can confirm. Yeah.
5: Um, and for a subset of the population, just taking estrogen at sufficient dosages will also reduce your yep. levels of progester or of, of testosterone. Like yep. it's it, your body yep. knows what it's doing. <laughs> yep.
4: It is. It is. It is. It it is pretty cool how much you can just change things up, and your body's like, "Oh, we're doing this now." Okay, got it. <laughs>
5: great. I have all these mechanisms. It's wonderful.
4: And with that, that wraps up part one of our little two-part series of episodes talking about hormone replacement therapy. Tomorrow, I'll talk more about access to gender-affirming treatment and touch on DIY HRT. Uh, Special thanks to Dr. Victoria Luna Brennan-Greve for chatting with me about gender-affirming hormonal treatment. You'll get to hear more of my discussion with her tomorrow as well, including a brief tangent about the Scythian priestesses, which I was, I was very, very, very excited to talk about. But that does it for us today. You can follow this show at Happen to hear Pod and Cool Zone Media on Twitter and Instagram. And you can look at my late night gender tweets at HungryBowtie on Twitter.com. So, see you all on the other side.